0: stand, and we'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and stand with me, and we'll read verses 15 through 23 as we continue on in our discussion, really our, 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 our investigation into the Apostle Paul's defense of his apostleship in light of his freedom in Christ and his freedom to proclaim the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward?" That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being myself without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Please be seated. this week, I had the joyful privilege of spending the entire week with a bunch of teens and youth leaders living here at the church, learning about world religions, teaching on evangelism, and then going out each afternoon for about three hours to share the gospel in the neighborhoods around downtown Maribel. We call this our Evangelism Implosion, or EI Week. We do this once every two years. And you'll see many of those who participated wearing their T-shirts this morning, a few here, uh, most next service and the service after that. We had an average of about 50 teens and 18 to 20 groups of two or three with guys paired together with girls. They were knocking on doors each afternoon, each with a leader in a support car to help monitor their safety, provide water and tracks, and move them around to different areas of each neighborhood. See, in this way, we can cover the most ground with the maximum efficiency possible don't just stop at the end of one street and walk back and be done. No, the driver comes and picks you up and immediately moves you to in the next street and then to the next one as we move our way throughout the neighborhoods around Maribel. Now, during these encounters, we ask a series of questions about the nature of and uh, person and work of Jesus Christ. We walk on to the door and say, well, we're doing a survey, but we're doing a survey about the person and work of Jesus or a survey about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads us then into a sharing of that gospel. We have a particular track. We call it Biblical Salvation Explained. It's simply God is the creator and owner of everything. He's holy. He's just. He's loving. And yet we, as men, are sinful and fallen. We are on our way to hell. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We are we are. Dead and trespasses and sins, and yet Jesus, God sent His Son Jesus, the perfect God man, the fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place, a substitutionary atonement, taking the wrath of God that we deserve, dying the death that we deserve, then bursting from the tomb on the third day, so that He would conquer life, and that we have to respond. We respond in repentance, recognizing our sin, grieving it, desiring to turn away from it, recognizing that we deserve the eternal hell that we are certainly on our way to. And then trusting in Jesus alone, his person, his work, none of our works, laying down our own lives as we call him Lord and Master, and we then step out in a life that seeks to follow him. This is the message. God and Man, and Christ, and faith, and we proclaim this over and over and over, practicing with each other, but then going out and practicing on these doorsteps. We handed out about 3,000 tracts. Again, the numbers themselves are unimportant, and yet it is amazing that in one week with that group of teens, how many houses that we were able to go to, about 3,000 Tracks, because we would leave a, a track at each door, even if we didn't talk to someone, and well over 500 gospel conversations. That is, actually being able to walk all the way through the gospel with the various individuals we talked to. Now, we did find many who claim to be believers in Jesus, and we able to challenge and encourage them in their faith, but we also ran into hundreds of people who worship different gods. I mean, here in Maryville, you, you ask the first question, do you believe in a God who created the universe? And their answer, I mean, they're already ready, you know, they're preparing their answer, no, we do not believe in a God. Then you have a great opportunity to just walk through the gospel. You don't. Well, there's God. He's holy, just, and loving. And here in Maribel, we have Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and everyone right here. I mean, you don't need to necessarily go around the world, although we do that, will do that, are doing that. We need to go around our neighborhoods. You will find it all. Atheists who absolutely reject the things of God, think they're just going back to dust and dirt and love it. And you're like, you love that? Why would you love the fact that you're going back to dirt? Why would you be proud of that? What is good about that? Nothing. We believe in a God who has saved us. We have a purpose to serve him and honor him. So we had a chance to talk to all of those different kinds of people. Well, why do we do this? Because we long for every person in Maryville to be saved from eternal hell and to have an infinite, eternal relationship with the gracious God who created them and who deserves their love and worship. We want to be innocent of the blood of all men, as Paul says in Acts 20, 26. We want to be able to say on Judgment Day that we didn't just worship together as a church, preparing and growing and deepening in our love for Christ, and yet expecting the unbelieving world to come to us. That's not the purpose of this morning, by the way. If there are unbelievers here, we rejoice in that. But the purpose here is that we would worship and honor our God, preparing ourselves to be used of him out in the world. But we wanted to make sure that we go out. I mean, what good is it if we prepare and don't go out? We want to become all things to all men that we might by all means save some. And if that means we need to become hot, sweaty, somewhat nervous door knockers, so be it. Now, not everyone is able to take the time to dedicate themselves to evangelistic efforts such as we undertook last week. Most of you were working. (laughs) You were earning money for your families to pour out into the work of the ministry. We understand that. So this is not for everybody to do all the time, yet it is a delight, and we appreciate your prayers. We appreciate those who went with us, yeah, eight, to, 8 to 10 adults out driving each day, and then you know, many more for shower ho- houses, and those who came as leaders, You know, 30 or 40 adults helping us out, and many of you praying. And this was a church effort. It's, it's a church group, not just a youth group. And yet we all are called to share the gospel. You see, door-to-door witnessing is really not even the most effective means. Right? It's one means. It's certainly effective for those that do it. But sharing in your relationships, sharing in your workplaces, sharing with those in your family who you've developed relationships with, that is the most effective means. As we then live out those truths and they see us day in and day out living that truth. I mean, you stand on someone's door, they don't really know if you're a Christian. <laughs> they haven't seen you. They can't even tell. But if you've lived with them and worked with them and walked with them, they know. And they see how you're different. And so those are the most effective ways by which we share the gospel and we are commanded to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us, to make disciples of all the nations, to be workers with God in the fields that are ripe for harvest. So we must carefully cultivate a mindset which keeps the living and proclaiming of the gospel foremost in our lives. We do much more in our lives than share the gospel with others, but we never do less. The Apostle Paul expresses this mindset in our passage this morning as he challenges us to do all things for the sake of Of the gospel. So, what we will see is this that the true believer builds his entire life around the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, always being ready to give up his personal rights, desires, and privileges to fulfill the stewardship of the gospel message entrusted to him by Christ. What we'll see this morning is that the true believer builds his entire life around the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, always being ready to give up his personal rights, desires, and privileges to fulfill the stewardship of the gospel message entrusted to him by Christ. We make ourselves slaves of all men so that they might know Christ and him crucified. Now, In this particular chapter, Paul has been working his way through the idolatry that was found in Corinth, beginning really in chapter 8 and then chapter 9 and 10. He addresses their continually going back into their culture and even as Christians living out the, the idol worship that they had fled from. So they were actually moving back into the culture and worshiping idols. And so he is challenging them with the things that are right and wrong within their culture. He says, look, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's not the issue. Food doesn't commend us to God. The meat itself is not tainted because it was sacrificed to a god. However, the way that you do that, where you would eat that meat, how you participate in that, that does matter. So you have to be very careful not to exercise our freedom to actually eat the meat, he says. You could do that, but you can't extend that freedom to then eating the meat in the wrong place. And either way, you might stumble a brother. You have to be very careful that they wouldn't see you and then go back into places of idolatry and they wouldn't see you and somehow have their consciences improperly strengthened to eat meat when they're not ready, when they still think that that was sacrificed to an idol. Their minds are still wrestling with that concept. So he says at the end of of chapter 8, verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. If my brother would be stumbled by this, because that's how we live. If anything would cause other believers to wrestle, we'll lay it down. See, our freedom in Christ is to give things up. We are free. Our consciences are not bound in that sense by others, and yet our true freedom is to give away anything which wouldn't be beneficial for other believers to grow and for, as we will now see most specifically in our text, for unbelievers to come to Christ. He's going to switch the emphasis a bit here. He's been talking about not stumbling other believers, and now he's going to work into being sure that nothing in your life would make you ineffective in your ministry to unbelievers. So, he talked about careful use of Christian liberty. His defense of his apostleship really in light of that. Remember, they were saying, look, Paul, we, we're spiritual. We've got the spirit like you do, All right? We're not actually engaged in idolatry. This is okay for us. We know that there's no other God but the one true one. So if we're sitting at these idol meat sacrifices, everything is fine. Paul says, you're wrong. You're wrong. There is only one God. And yet, that worship of other gods is really participated in by demons. It is, it is, it is a demonic kind of worship and you can't participate even though the food itself is not tainted. So Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. I am free to give you this message. My freedom, in one sense, trumps yours because my authority is greater than yours. He says, I'm an apostle. And remember, that only apostles have that authority. I don't, you don't. Our authority is always derived. It's derived through the gospel message, but the gospel message was first given to the apostles who preached it. That's why their authority flows through these words that God gave them, these inspired words, and so we proclaim these, not our own. So he says, look, I, I have the right as an apostle to take money from you, but I'm gonna to refuse to do so because even that they were using against him, right? In two ways, really. He wasn't taking money, he wasn't being supported by them, so they were saying, well, maybe you don't have the right gifts. or Maybe you aren't actually an apostle. These other eminent men and these great speakers are, are taking money, Remember the patronage involved in the society where they would hitch themselves to rich patrons and then who you received your money from really validated the authority of your ministry. Paul says, I'm not taking money from anybody. And they were saying, well, that must mean you're not an apostle. He goes, whoa, wait. Chapter 9. If I'm not an apostle, you're not a church. And right? if I'm not a true apostle, you didn't hear the gospel and you can't, you can't come to know Christ. So certainly I'm an apostle, yet my taking money, although I fully deserve it, I'm giving it up so that I'm not tied in some way to you. I'm not beholden to you so that you can manipulate me. And that's what they were trying to do. Not every church did that. Some churches gave to Paul with absolutely innocent, pure motives, just pouring out their lives. The Thessalonians and the Philippian churches just gave to him because they loved him. The Corinthians were giving with strings attached. So Paul says, I'm not taking it. I'm going to be free from you in that way. And additionally, I'm going to be free from any tainting of the gospel. Because the other thing they were doing is if he took the money, if he'd taken it, he knew what they would say is, well, you're just greedy for money. So they're trying to get him both ways. If you take our money, see, you're just a greedy money grubber. You're in this for your own gain. Paul says, you're not going to get me either way. I refuse to take money, not that I don't have the right to do so, because Jesus actually says that those who give their life for the gospel ought to get their, money, ought to get their living from it, because when am I going to do it? Because if I did, it would taint my boast, and my one boast is not that I'm preaching the gospel, because if I preach the gospel, I, I have no choice. I have a stewardship. My boast, says Paul, is to be able to preach the gospel freely, because Christ is my greatest reward. That's his one boast in Christ, Christ and him crucified, and this is true for us. Paul says, I'd rather die than provide an excuse for anyone to accuse me of greed or false motives. I have nothing to boast about in preaching the gospel. It's my divine obligation, and thus I don't deserve financial support in that way. And he found his greatest reward in preaching the gospel without financial compensation so others could receive it without cost, and there could be no question that Christ was his highest motivation and greatest joy. Now, as we continue on in our passage this morning, Paul will summarize his arguments concerning giving up all rights and privileges associated with being free in Christ so that the greatest possible amount of people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So we'll see this in Paul's explanation of his slavery, his pursuit of slavery, and his dedication to slavery, and I do not think we will make it all the way through, but we will get as far as we can. This is a actually there's some complex thoughts in here around the nature of what it means to give up your rights. This has been much misunderstood over time, so we're going to go slow. idea can I change the message? Can, how far can I accommodate? We'll try to work our way through some of those things. They're not Paul's major point, but they're necessary for us as we come after Paul, trying to understand how do we live out these things that he is saying. So we'll do the best we can to understand the context of his comments and how we live them out in our own experience. So first, we'll see Paul's explanation of his slavery, and probably this would be enough for this morning, just the one phrase we're going to have here. We could could spend all of our time just fleshing this out and probably being convicted about this reality that we would live as the Apostle Paul does. But he's really kind of summarizing, again, his whole arguments here about freedom and laying down his rights to do certain things, and he's going to summarize it in verse 19. For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, Paul is saying this as a divine or an anointed, not divine, but an anointed apostle one was, who was given his gospel by the divine Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we will see as we work our way through this passage that this is to be the attitude of all of us because all men in Christ are free. You have been set free. You're set free from sin and death and hell. You're set free from the standards of the Mosaic Law as the means by which you interact with God. You've been set free from those things. All of us are free. And yet, what Paul will say here is that our freedom really reflects an underlying slavery to God, and that means that we purposely make ourselves slaves of others. No one lives like this except Christians. No one purposely placing themselves into slavery underneath others for no gain that they would receive from themselves or for themselves no one no one does this with the right motives but really no one even does this so we're going to try to flesh this out a little bit paul was absolutely free what does he mean free from all men well galatians 5:13 you were called to freedom brethren Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, you're free from the law, the the structure of associating to God through the Mosaic laws, which really could only condemn us. We're free from living in that way. And so Paul, really, I think there's two main senses in which he's expressing this freedom. One is certainly very practical. He was financially free from everyone in Corinth. I'm free. I'm not tied to you in any financial way. You've got no strings. You can't pull any strings and say, well, we're paying you, so do this, or we gave you money so you could do that. Plus, I'm free from you, and I'm purposely free. Even though I had the right to take it, I'm absolutely free from you. There's no demand or favor or expectation that they could have in providing him money. And again, we've said this. The minister of the gospel has full right as given by the Lord to receive financial support. But if at any time that financial support would somehow hinder the going forth of the gospel, then it has to be denied. It has to be laid down. If somehow at this church it would would become necessary to lay down financial payment, then the ministers of the gospel here at this church, the full-time ones, would have to do so. If somehow that would taint the gospel here or somewhere else, prayerfully it never would. Prayerfully, you would never be a congregation that would be trying to manipulate through the giving of money, but if that ever happened, the money would have to be dropped so that there could be no strings pulled, there could be no improper uh, uh, influence uh, sought to be asserted through that money. So Paul was free financially, but he was also free to pursue the work of Christ in all the ways that the Word of God commanded him. This is probably the greater, the, the overarching nature of this statement He was free to pursue the work of Christ in all ways that the word of God commanded, his commission as an apostle required, and his conscience allowed. He was not required to perform certain actions because others thought he should or because the Mosaic law directed him in that way. His conscience, informed by the word of God, illumined and empowered by the spirit of God, was sufficient to properly direct his thoughts and actions. And we'll flesh that out a bit. But he goes, I'm absolutely free to serve and to love God. And that put him in a position then where he could say this second statement. Because if he's not absolutely free, this next statement doesn't make any sense. If he's not totally free, he can't willingly make himself a slave. He's already one. You Like someone in the world saying, I'm free to do what I want. Some unbeliever. See, I'm free. You Christians, you're under constraint. You have, you know, you've got these rules and regulations. And you've got these, you know, authoritative people telling you what to do. I'll probably... 75% 75% of the people we talked to who claim to be Christians uh, didn't go to church. Why? Because we don't believe, they don't believe in organized religion. They don't believe in authoritative structures. And we're like, what are you talking about? The Bible commands that. But anyway, be like an unbeliever saying, oh, I'm free. No one's influencing my decisions. Seriously? One, the world around you is influencing you to a tremendous degree. But additionally, you're dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, you are an absolute slave to sin. Well, believers aren't. We are not slaves to sin. We're free. We are not required to sin at all. We do because sin remains. Don't mishear me. But we're not required to do so. We are free in that way. But no unbeliever ever is or was. Only Christians are. See, only Christians can make this statement because only Christians are free. Not just apostles. Every believer is completely free to serve and love God and is no longer under the domination of sin and death and hell. So Paul says, I willingly make myself a slave. This is my delight. I long to do this. And and I put the word willingly in there. It's not in the text, but it says, I have made myself. The intensive nature of the pronoun here says that Paul did this on purpose. He did it to himself. Yes, it's commanded by Christ, but he was willing. He delighted to do this. Not as a man pleaser. Paul wasn't putting himself underneath men in such a way that anything that pleased them, he wanted to do, right? He would put himself, however, under their constraints, cultural traditions or religious practices, as far as was biblically allowable, if that would help them come to know Christ. The things that rule them, he would temporarily and willingly allow to rule him. Not sinful things, not their sinful lusts and desires, but their cultural traditions, as we'll see, they're continuing to remain under the law, or they're pursuing some kind of religion, some kind of structure of, of religion apart from the law. This is a shocking metaphor. Don't downplay it. I am willingly giving up my rights. I am becoming a slave. The world says no one should ever be a slave. You should never do that. It's become the dirtiest word in our language. You cannot become a slave because that all of the evil that comes along with it. Well, again, The cultural nature of slavery is an entirely different discussion, but it was in the culture that he's discussing this. In the Roman Empire, there were literally only two kinds of people, slave and free, and the vast majority of people in the Roman Empire were slaves with all of the evil that came along with that, their lives being totally given over to another. They're being totally owned by someone else, and Paul says, look, I'm willingly doing that. You were dragged off into slavery. You were a conquered people that had to be slaves. You were sold into slavery by someone else. Maybe even you sold yourself into slavery so you could get something. People would do that. They were in debt, so they'd have to sell themselves into slavery. Or they wanted to provide for their families, and they couldn't do so as a freed man or a free person, so they would sell themselves into slavery. But always to get something for themselves. Paul says, look, I give myself into slavery to get nothing but only to give. To get, the only thing he's getting, as it were, is converts to Christ. No personal money, no personal gain, no personal advancement. And so this is absolutely shocking. The pillar commentary says this, Paul does not lead from a secure position above others, but from a position below them incarnating the folly of the cross. One can only imagine how a member of the Corinthian elite might respond to the idea that another free person would willingly become their slave in order to save them. It's been suggested that a free person might sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt, to secure a more stable life, or to climb socially. Paul makes himself a slave of all, not to gain any advantage for himself, but for those that he would serve. And in this sense, all ministers of the gospel are to be slaves of those they serve. But also, we are each willing, every one of us, every member of this congregation, we are each willing slaves to make provision for the benefit of others. This is not the mindset of today's Christianity. This is not the mindset, it would seem to me, of American Christianity. The mindset is, yeah, we're believers and we get this. We're believers and we should have this. We're believers. We're Christians in this culture, and the culture owes us this, or this kind of influence, or we ought to have this. We are owed nothing by sinful culture. We deserve and demand nothing from those around us in that sense. We are the slaves of those in this world so that we might see them come to Christ. Again, not slaves that simply bow to the whims of others. That's not the issue. Slaves that willingly bend underneath and do anything necessary to see others come to Christ. Again, anything necessary as we will see within the bounds of Scripture. So much for celebrity pastors who lorded over the flock And selfish Christians who use other people for what they can get, there is no such thing. That is, there should be no such thing. Augustine said this, man is most free when controlled by God alone. In case you wonder, well, Chris, I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. He's willingly doing this, but we don't all have to be slaves like this, do we? Well, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul is not simply living according to his own example. What's he doing? He's simply doing what Christ did, Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called him to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, slave. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to be a slave and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. No believer can say, well, that's not my calling. That might be Paul's calling, that might be your calling, radical, weirdo, Christian. No, that's the calling that the Lord Jesus has given you because that's the calling that Jesus lived. He came and was a slave to the people of this earth. He allowed them to kill him, all for the purpose of their coming to know Christ. Romans fifteen two. each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And see, this is not only in just dying. Jesus came to die, he gave his life a ransom for many, but he also served them while on earth. This is exemplified in his washing of feet. See, you and I don't go on to death for others generally, that happens people do, they are martyrs, and in other places, that's becoming increasingly common, really it has been forever, maybe someday that will happen here, but until such time as you actually give your physical life, you are to, in death, you are to give your physical life in service, you are to bend your knee underneath others in washing their feet, this is what Jesus said and did, John 13, 14, if I then, I, the Lord, King, Master, Ruler, God, The Lord and teacher washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. How is your foot washing? How is your slavery? What are you anxious and bitter and upset about? Almost always you will find that that's because you are refusing to be a slave. Slaves don't worry too much about what they're not getting from other people. So don't worry too much about what society hasn't provided for them. So don't worry too much about the fact that other people aren't treating them well because that is the nature of a slave. You enter into slavery to be mistreated. That's what happens. You are giving of your life and not expecting that somehow that you would be receiving anything in return. Precious congregation, how's it going? This is difficult. You are not called to be a normal American. You may not live as your culture lives, which is for themselves. And the greatest of their sacrifice, it is still for themselves. You cannot, must not live that way. But we're so easily drawn to it and so easily frustrated when we don't get to be both Christians and masters. You can't be both of those things. If you are a Christian, you are a slave. And you are to willingly make yourself so. You are in that position already, you are a slave to God. And then you willingly make yourself a slave to others. But there's a purpose. There's a reason. I'm not just telling you to do this. Well, you know, this oppressive church that's just telling you some kind of weird cultist thing. It's telling you, just, look, you just better give yourselves as slaves and wander around with a, a you know horrible-looking expression, cowed expression on your face. No, there is a reason you do this. Number three, Paul desired to see the maximum amount of people saved. So he was absolutely free. He willingly made himself a slave. For the purpose of having the maximum amount of people saved. Notice that he says, so that. That's always the the purpose clause. Why am I making myself a slave? I may win, very important word, more. Could some people come to Christ if Paul was a foolish, arrogant Christian? Actually, yes. If he proclaimed the gospel, it could happen. And you know foolish, arrogant Christians who proclaim the gospel, and by the Lord's grace, people come to Christ. But not more people. Not the maximum amount. That's the idea here not the fullest amount possible coming to Christ, that only happens when believers lay down their lives in slavery. There might be people coming to Christ in your life. I, I delight in that I rejoice in that. But would more come if you acted more like a slave? Would more people know Jesus if you were more submitted to the will of God and willing to bring yourself underneath anything necessary that they would come to know Christ? I think the answer is yes. Absolutely. Would more people in Maryville know Jesus if we were more slaves to Christ and to them? The answer is yes. Yes. There's just, there isn't any way we can dispute that, but that should be our goal. We wrestle with sin. We wrestle with selfishness. We wrestle to be masters, not slaves. And we quickly put ourselves in opposition to other people and, and proclaim our supremacy over them. Too much of that in American Christianity. Well, there's these sinners here, and these sinners here, and these sinners here, and so I would certainly never yield in any way to them. Well, you wouldn't yield to their sin. You wouldn't yield to the, their LGBTQ plus agenda. You wouldn't yield. You know, well, I'm talking yielding to those things. We'll work our way through that. But you would willingly come underneath them to set aside your own needs and desires, your own pleasures, your own political affiliations, whatever it might be. You would set it aside so that they would know Jesus, wouldn't you? And wouldn't I? Are you going to cling to those identity markers that you have? I'm this and I'm this and I'm this and if you become this then I'll tell you the gospel. If you become this then I'll serve you. No, before that when they never change their minds and their political affiliation is entirely opposite of yours and everything they want is different than you want you come underneath them in every way possible to say I love you and I desire for you to know Jesus. Maybe that goes, means going and knocking on their door. And they've got this big you know, on this big political sign that's different than yours, you don't go, Psh, I'm not going to your door. What are you talking about? You don't, you don't believe like I do. They got the big you know, we walked through neighborhoods draped with LGBTQ+ plus flags. And we walked right up to the doors. Now, what does that matter? In that sense? Does't matter anything if we're going to share the gospel with you. And we just start off by saying, you better get that flag off your doorstep." you need you need to know, do you believe in a God? Do you believe in right and wrong? Do you believe that there's a punishment for those who don't obey God's standard and that it's eternal hell and that God is just and holy and that if you don't obey him, you have zero chance, not little, not some, not some wiggle room, you have zero chance of ever entering into heaven and you will and in fact already are on the way to eternal hell and yet God in his grace sent you his son so if you trust in him, you can live forever. I don't care what your flag looks like and I don't care what kind of affiliation you have and it doesn't matter to me all the stuff you've got on your doorstep or in your house. It's only one thing that matters is that Jesus is not being honored by you and you are on your way to eternal hell and I beg and plead with you that you would change your mind because we begged and pleaded with a lot of people. There were tears on doorsteps this week. It's sweet to see teens who start off just kind of, you know, they're just doing the job and all of a sudden they're on, the, on that doorstep going, this person is gonna die. And they're begging them, pleading with them. I mean, that, that's, that's being a slave, one way. It's only one. It's just not the only way. Slavery is volitional, but necessary. Paul says, so that I may win. He's going to use this word five times. I may win more. It's usually used for some kind of financial advantage, like winning money, winning the lottery. I gained more. Well, in this sense, it's used the advantage of seeing people gained for Christ. They're going from death and, and hell to life and truth, it's a tremendous advantage. Paul says, I'm winning them. I'm gaining them, as it were. He doesn't do it himself, of course. It's the power of the gospel. Paul knows this. And yet he says, I want to win more. He can place it that way because his whole efforts, all of his efforts are designed around the fact that they would be one, we use that term, one for Christ, one back. They would gain the advantage of knowing Christ. There's no greater advantage in the world than knowing Christ, You've won everything if you've won Christ, but so often we want to win everything else. We, do, we want to win the lottery more than we want to know Christ. Or we want to win or have Christ. And you in your life do not value Christ as the greatest win, right? <laughs> Winning people to Christ is the greatest thing because it's the greatest advantage that anyone could ever have. They could stop, we could stop aborting babies, we could stop having homosexuality, we could do all of those things. It wouldn't be the greatest win. The greatest win is that someone would come to Christ. Does someone who comes to Christ stop aborting babies? Yes. Do they stop living in homosexuality? Yes. But are we winning them for that purpose? No. That they would know and love and serve and honor Jesus. Paul says, look, I, I become a slave. You can't go, you can't, you can't go any lower and stay alive. Please understand that. There's no there's no rung below slave. I had the picture, again, the Roman slave and maybe the, the Roman galley slave rowing away all of his life, being whipped and beaten to the beat of the drum until he drops dead. This was not a glamorous a slave, glamorous thing. No. There's no lower rung and still be alive. If you go into death, that's it. It's the only place you could go further. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may gain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It's only one thing to win. It's only one way you win, and that's to know Christ. We win people to Christ, not to our agenda, not to our church, but we win them to Christ. He says, I just want to win more. Gordon Gordon Fee. Paul cannot modify, by the way, this passage isn't talking all the way through, and as I say, we're not going to get real far this morning. This passage isn't talking about the message of the gospel. That's another discussion for another time, is can and you know, how can you contextualize the gospel or what does that actually mean? We're not talking about that. We're talking about personal behavior here. All the way through, Paul is talking about his behavior, not his message. So that's for that the, the, the contextualization of message will be for another time, but the contextualization of behavior is for today and the next couple of weeks. How can we change our behavior? Gordon Fee, Paul could not modify the gospel itself according to the particular characteristics of his hearers. The whole of his concern is to make clear that the changeless gospel empowers him to be free to change his stance, that is, how he will relate to them. This especially needs to be heard among those who would equate certain non-ethical behavioral items with the gospel itself. There's many pitfalls here. Some, all of you, are hearing this from kind of a little different stance. You've heard certain things or done certain things. But, but just from point one, the Apostle Paul is willingly making himself a slave. Are you willing to live your life with the mindset of a slave? I'm here to serve everyone. Doesn't mean you ever compromise the truth or do simply what people want. It just means that everyone's need for the gospel transcends all of your needs and wants and desires. Would that change the way you live in your family? (laughs) I mean, it would. Would that change the way you live in society? Could could you just? I mean, wouldn't this be sweet? So you never had to be anxious about someone else's political affiliation, ever. (laughs) Who cares? I'm I'm just your slave. Now, again, it's kind of enter into the conversation. I get that. But it just, it doesn't matter. Do, do, do you really care? And one says, does it rile you up that they're homosexual? Well, the answer is only because it reflects an unrepentant sin that would lead them to eternal hell. And if they gave up their homosexuality and continued to be angry and bitter and stole things, they'd still go to hell, right? One of my kids had a, had that discussion with someone on the doorstep. Well, I'm not going to church because the church said that... My friends are going to hell because they're homosexuals. He goes, well, the church probably didn't say that. Probably what they said was because they're practicing homosexuality and they're not repenting of that sin, they're going to go to hell because they're sinners. And he asked them. This is one of my, this is a teen. He's on their doorstep and he goes, well, if they stop being homosexual, would they still go to hell? He asked them that. And I didn't tell him to say it and nobody gave him that. And they were like, yeah. He goes, then what's the problem? Well, because I just don't want them saying them that label. They're still going to go to hell. It doesn't matter what the label is. It would change everything. Some of those things don't matter in the, in the scope may of, maybe of culture, but they don't matter eternally. It is one sin among many. And we lay down our lives. Someone, I mean, what we asked them at the door, we always ask them, are you a good person? 99.9% of them. I think we had four people, maybe five that we knew of this week that said, I am not a good person. All were evangelical nearly as we could tell true believers that was the only that's the only people that say that and even then mostly believers say it <laughs> you still say uh, you know I believe in Jesus why when you get to heaven and God says should I let you in what are you going to say because I did good things no stop but nonetheless the, the issue is we ask them have you lied H- have, have you loved God with all your heart soul mind and strength have you lusted in your heart have you been angry we could ask them are you homosexual most of them would say no are they off the hook? You're going to die and go to hell. You're not a good person, so I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to lay it down as a slave. Well, we better we better move. We'll, we'll, we'll introduce this next point. <laughs> all right? That's all, it's all we'll do. I told you this one was enough for this morning, and so it is. Uh, let's in, introduce the next one simply because it will then give us a, an insight into how Paul did this because you should be thinking about this this week, right? You know this passage, many of you, but let's just kind of read the next verse and next verses and, and get our minds around what Paul is saying. So in order to do this, he's now going to give practical examples. I love Paul. <laughs> I'm going to go, okay, Paul, what are you talking about? Because all kinds of things come to your mind. And unfortunately, this, and all the reams of stuff that's been written about this, it's like, well, you can go ahead and sin and, and, and you know, you can, you can totally live out a, a debauched lifestyle or you can at least look like you are. and wh- Some just ridiculous stuff that's out there. And, and most of it is just literally just ridiculous. But the Apostle Paul is going to give, this is what it means when he says I'm a slave to all, and he's going to break them down, uh, slave to who? There's two kinds of people in Paul's world, all right, Jews and Gentiles, that's it. He's just going to break them down, I'm slave to Jews, because they have one belief system, and slaves to Gentiles, they have another belief system, and that's really it. So if you want to know what it means, you can just think about it in, in terms of, all right, there are those who have, and in our world, there's just one kind of people, unbelievers, like there's believers who this is not addressed to directly, than those unbelievers who are a law unto themselves. So really, the vast majority of discussion that we'll have is around the second group of people that Paul talks about. But let's look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law. Really, that's Jews and Gentiles who tried to live according to the Jewish law. Right? So Jews and then everybody else who tried to live according to Jewish law. It's not any law, it's Jewish law. To those as under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law myself is the implication, so that I might win those who are under the law. All right? So I'm going I'm to become like a Jew, so I win Jews. I'm going to become as though I'm under the law. We'll discuss all this next week. But here's where, here's where we'll, I mean, for our practical applications, most of the people we talk to are, are verse 21. To those who are without law. I mean, you don't talk to very many Jews. I don't think we ran into any of those who are involved in Judaism this week. All right, to those who are without law, as without law, that is those who don't have the Jewish law, they're not trying to obey the Mosaic law, so how do I live with them? Though he says here, and you can just be chewing on this for this week, they're not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What is he talking, what's the law of Christ? How what does it mean to be not under the law? How do you live as not under the law and then say, well, I'm going to live like I'm under the law? What does it even look like? If you don't know what it means to live like under the law, you certainly don't know what it means to live without being under the law. So we have to work our way through these things so we understand what's going on. Because look, I'm always, hear me, maybe final thought for this morning, I'm always under the law of Christ. I'm always directed by God's law. I'm never outside of the bounds of the principles of Scripture, a little preview little little teaser for next week, the idea that obeying the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, that was the way to be rightly related to God. You still had to believe in God. By faith, always that's been the means of salvation, but you couldn't in the Old Testament say, God, I believe in you and I'm not gonna do your sacrificial system. Nope. You don't count as a believer. So there's no option for that. You had to obey. You were under the system of Old Testament law. Even if you were a true believer in God, you still had to do the Old Testament law. It was your way of being related to God. In the New Testament... That way of being related to God, the Torah, the Old Testament law is gone, totally. But everything, all of the foundational moral principles, and I'm not breaking the law into moral and civil and ceremonial, but all of the underlying moral principles of the law remain, the law of God, that's, I'm convinced what he's talking about. God has a law, he has moral principles, he's a moral God, and you can't ever undo that doesn't matter what you say or where you are or what kind of slave you say you are or what kind of contextualization you want to make of your behavior. God has laws. They are moral. You have to obey them all. The law of Christ being what? The obedience then to every principle uh, that's found in the Old Testament that relates to God's moral law that we are to then obey. Remember the underlying law, that morality that underlies civil ceremonial and the directly moral laws. Things like if the Old Testament says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Well, I'm not under the law, so I don't have to do that. That reflects a timeless truth. Children coming underneath the authority of their parents. If, where it says in the Old Testament law, that children who, are, who revile their parents are to be stoned, do we do that? No. It's a little simple illustration. It's directly to Israel. It's in their, in their laws. It reflects the underlying moral principle of obedience to parents. But thankfully, children here this morning... When you revile your parents, they do not drag you before the city elders and have you stoned to death. We're very grateful for that, but that's what they were supposed to do. However, are you out from underneath the law of God to obey your parents because you're free, you're a new covenant Christians? No, you are called to obey that moral principle. All right, so you can chew on that this week when it comes to the idea of being under law and not, but the bottom line is this. Anything you would ever do for anyone in order to win them to the gospel, giving up any of your own rights, everything that you are free to do in Christ can never mean compromise of God's morality ever. And yet, and yet for Christians, you aren't seeking to compromise God's morality at all, right? I mean, you know, already know this to be true. You are living according to all the principles of Scripture that have even gone more deeply internal, not hating in your heart, not lusting in your heart, being kind and gracious and compassionate. You're already doing that, so why would you even think about sinning in order to win someone? What you're going to have to do is figure out, I have all these freedoms as a Christian. I have all these things I could do, all these ways I could spend my time. I'm not stuck in idolatry. I'm no longer dead in my trespasses and sins. I could live my life in all of these ways. What can I give up? What can I lay down? What can I do for... That's your main problem. Most of you aren't thinking about, how can I sin to win Christians? What you're thinking about is, wow, I don't really want to give up my lifestyle that I, that I can rightfully pursue. I can sit home and watch good TV, John Piper says this. You can sit home and watch good TV all night long and have the total freedom to do so and you'd be wasting your life. You wouldn't be a slave to all men. So as you consider these things. First thought, do you live with the mindset of a Christian slave, willingly giving of your life to anyone and everyone and considering how it is you come underneath them so that for unbelievers, that's the primary context here, they would know Christ. For believers, it would be that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. And then next, are you, as you look at all the freedoms you have in your life, the things that you are free to do, that you have time and opportunity as a believer to do, are you willing and what are you willing to give up to be more effective in your witness? Your time, your energy? What are you willing to give up? Not, not vaguely, Paul's gonna, he tells us, this is what I'm giving up. These are the places I'm doing it. If you, if we were to be asked by someone, you go home this afternoon and you sit down, your, your husband says to you, Hun, what are you giving up? How are you being a slave? What, what would you say? This will be a challenge for us. If we as a church could live like this, we would win more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these powerful truths. Thank you that you became our slave, that you came underneath us, that you stepped out of heaven where you were king and Lord, and you remained Lord and master, and yet you willingly laid down your life for us. You willingly submitted yourselves to the very creature yourself, to the very creatures that you created, that you might win more, that you might win all whom you would have. And Lord, I pray that we would live with that mindset, would strike from us our pride, strike from us our clinging to our rights and our, 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 our proper privileges that we might see more coming to love you and serve you and escape the wrath that comes in your precious name.